Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC, and in this series I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world, and today is no exception. I'm going to be talking to Chip Conley. Now let me give you a little background on Chip. Chip is the founder and former CEO of Joie de Vivre, which is one of the most interesting boutique hotel chains in the world. He was CEO for 24 years, and Joie de Vivre, which he founded, grew to become the second largest boutique hotel company in America. I've been lucky enough to stay in one of those hotels. And in 2003, this is his next incarnation, he joined Airbnb as head of global hospitality and strategies. And of course, Airbnb is completely turning the hospitality industry on its head. So it's exciting to talk to Chip about that. But what is even more, or at least as interesting, I think, is how I met Chip in the first place. When he was CEO of Joie de Vivre, he had written a best-selling book called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. You know, everybody knows Albert Maslow, I mean, <laughs> Abraham Maslow and his need hierarchy. It was fabulous talk and a fabulous book. And then he's since written another one that was it's called Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness and Success. And we all want that. And I'm, I've started the book, Chip. It's fabulous. So this is really a book that helps people uh, find a way to a simple mantra that will help them uh, think through how the dynamics of uh, meaning and emotion in their lives. So we hope to get to that in the call. I am also very proud to say that Chip is a member of APQC's Board of Directors. So welcome, Chip. Thank you. Great to be with you, Carla. Okay, Chip. So it appears that your professional calling has been to disrupt the lodging industry, first with Joie de Vivre <laughs> and now with Airbnb. So what made Joie de Vivre so unique? What is the, dis- you know, talk talk to us. Okay. Well, you know, it is it is strange to be a hotelier or a hospitality person and also be called a disruptor because they sort of it sounds like an oxymoron. You would think of a hospitality person as being not disruptive, but um, yes, I, in fact, uh, in my 30-year hospitality career, I guess I've been a disruptor twice. First was Shwada Um I was a youngster. I was 25 years old. I was uh, working for a commercial real estate developer in San Francisco, not enjoying my life a whole lot. Um, and I was fascinated by the hotel business because, uh, generally speaking, back in the mid-1980s, the U.S. hotel business was defined by badly run hotels that were not part of a chain and then relatively well-run hotels that were part of a chain, but they were generic because the chain hotels, the Marriott's and the Hilton's of the world, really believed at that time that what people wanted more than anything else was predictability. And um, so I was one of those early pioneers uh, amongst the boutique hotel world. Boutique hotels are generally smaller than chain hotels, more personalized, quite design-oriented, and and usually very localized uh, with a great restaurant or bar that locals enjoy. And I decided to, at age 26, uh, create my first boutique hotel, which is the first of 52. And um, I guess the way that boutique hotels and my company, Joie de Vivre, disrupted the hotel industry is that we helped educate the big hotel chains that predictability was not the only thing that uh, hotel guests were looking for. They were also looking for an experience, and especially a localized experience. Um, so, yes, now, and frankly, now the hotel chains have, you know, whether it's W which is part of Starwood or whether it's um, a whole collection of other boutique hotels, you know, intercontinental hotels bought Kimpton, which is the largest boutique hotel company in the U S. Um, so it's been a, it's clear that the disruption has led to 
um, an assimilation and such that the big hotel chains now are very boutique-like. Yeah, it's it's so true, and thank you. It's just created better experiences for the rest of us because a lot of us do seek that out, that local experience. What? How did that, you know, like Airbnb is a completely different business model. It's not like you're yep. deciding what goes on the walls, right, of these people's homes. Right. It's Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know we are we have two million listings today and uh, 1.2 million hosts in 191 countries, 34,000 cities, uh, and that's with a company that just really has only grown up in the last few years. I, I've been here for three years now uh, and sort of helping the three founders run the company and and lead. Uh, the premise behind Airbnb was there are people who have extra space, an extra bedroom down the hall, or you're a McKinsey consultant on the road 12 weeks a year. You're a teacher who actually has three months off during the summer, and when you are not using your space, either your whole home or a cottage in the backyard or a bedroom down the hall, you could rent it out to somebody who is traveling. Um, it, it, the, the, guy, the idea came from t- to, uh, three mid, uh, guys in their mid-20s um, who basically put air mattresses out on their living room floor when there was a big conference in San Francisco and everything was sold out. And they're just trying to pay the rent, and you know. And now we're the largest hospitality company in the world, and the most valuable one. Um, I think the big thing I learned at Airbnb, or what I've helped to teach here in the three years I've been here, is that the idea of localized experiences, which is what boutique hotels are all about, is what Airbnb is about, even to a greater extreme. Um, in the sense that generally when people are staying in someone's home, they're staying in a residential neighborhood, not in a downtown, not near a convention center. Um, and so that process of actually getting to know a local neighborhood or a community is part of what is our strategic competency. And so it's really important for our host to do a great job of creating a personalized experience for a guest, especially if you get to know your guest a little bit and can say, well, I know you like doing yoga and you're a vegetarian and you love you know, art. Here's some things you can do in the neighborhood that are perfectly suited for you. So um, part of the reason we've grown so quickly is because of the fact it's a very personalized, localized experience. Do your hosts actually, I've had a couple of experiences at State, used Airbnb um, and loved it. Have your hosts like done? I mean, is that what they do? They do yeah. a little bit more curation of the of the yeah. Buildings? Yeah. You know, it's it's generally a one to one experience, meaning that you know you have a host and they have one guest at a time. Um, they the host, if they're on the road and they're renting their whole place, they're the the whole hospitality experience maybe by phone or by email. It, there may not be a face to face connection because the person who you're renting from is literally in in France right now. So. Um, you know, because they're on the road, but the we do it. We've done a whole lot of training, and it's been a fascinating experience in psychology. How do you how do you incentivize and motivate people who aren't, aren't working for you, but they're working for themselves? They're they're own micro entrepreneurs. Um, how do you actually incentivize them to do a great job? Um, and it's been really fascinating to see how what what we've done has worked so well, and it really has helped to democratize the hospitality industry, which is not a bad thing. Let's go back to this question that's fascinating about incentive. How do you incentivize people who aren't actually working for you? And that yeah. is a huge area of interest. I know it, even at MIT, um, uh, Sandy Pentland's doing some research on the social physics of how uh, groups can motivate their own members. 
And I think social media ratings have something to do with it. You you do a ratings process, or your your uh, yeah. guests or do that. Talk about how that works, and what's what have you discovered? Have there been any surprises in how that worked? Well, there's a couple things that I think really define Airbnb, um, and it's for one, it's a, it, our peer-to-peer review system is sort of fundamental because. Uh, in essence, Airbnb has innovated a variety of things, but probably more than anything, just the idea of trust. How do you trust someone? More than half of our uh, travelers are international travelers going to a different country. And so how do you trust someone across the borders, someone you've never met before? Uh, and so some of that is very much based upon how um, how the host writes their listing and the photographs, but so much of it's also the peer-to-peer reviews. What's interesting is that in the hotel business, about 10 to 15% of hotel guests will fill out an online uh, survey after they've stayed in a hotel. At Airbnb, 70 to 75% of our hosts and guests review each other after a stay. Um, and so the, the difference between 10 to 15% versus 70 to 75% is the difference between a very passive transaction uh, and, uh, in Airbnb's case, a community. And the community is only as good as the trust that's built based upon the peer-to-peer review system. So um, it's very important. If you know you're a host and you know your guest is going to review you, you're going to do a better job. In fact, if if you were a front desk clerk at a hotel and you knew you were going to be reviewed by every guest who's coming in, you'd probably step up your game some. And that's really what happens with our Airbnb host. So there's that. There's a super host program we put in place, which incentivizes our best host um, and, and gives them a badge. And, you know, so there's a sense of motivation around that. Um, but there's a whole collection of other things we've done. It's been, it has been a deep dive into psychology, and I, I love that. Yeah, the whole psychology of this kind of motivation and peer-to-peer reviews. Do you, what do you think causes the and there's a lot of other applications for your answer. So what what do you think causes the uh, percent reviewers to go from 10 to 15 to percent up to 70 to 75 percent? Because one could have predicted it would have even gone the other way for fear of offending somebody you've met in person. So That's right. Yeah, we've made some changes. I you know since I joined, I we made a couple major changes. Like one in particular that helped actually increase the review system was was the fact that prior to me getting here, uh, a host and a guest could review each other, and then whoever reviewed each other first the review would show up um, publicly on site. And there wasn't really a, a great ability for you to give private feedback uh, from a host to guest or a guest to host. W- the change we made that really actually made a huge uh, d- difference in terms of how many people were doing reviews were number one, you can't, once you review someone, it doesn't appear until 14 days have passed from the time you stayed there. And if the if you if you're a guest and you give a review and the host doesn't give a review, it'll just go up at 14 days. And after that, the host can't review you. Um, but if you you do your review at day three and the host does it at day seven, at day seven both will appear. But they you don't get to sort of have retribution. And that was really important because people are cautious about giving a review if they, they feel like by saying something honest and candid, the the you know, other side, the guest or the host will actually say something bad about them. So that was that was a really you know fundamental change, and then also only giving people 14 days and it helped as well. I think more than anything, it, it, the idea that our community knows that they rely heavily on the feedback they read uh, from other uh, guests helps to have our quality rise to the top, and frankly, it helps us to to actually take. Uh, hosts off the site, and sometimes guests off the site, guests who are abusive, hosts who just don't give you know enough attention to their hospitality. Uh, over time, they aren't 
they go lower in search rankings, and then frankly, at some point, sometimes we actually take them off the site. I think it's absolutely fascinating what you've tapped into, among other things, because this is a complex little dynamic you've created here. But one of the aspects of it is that of gratitude and reciprocity. And I think your pull it. If I share, I know that I am grateful. It's why I, it's why I'll post a review on Amazon. Is I'm grateful that uh, other people have given me some insight and helped me make a decision, and I'm going to do the same. And I think reciprocity yeah. really does matter in in the in this kind of world. I had not thought before about the trust question too, and uh, I think I want to blog about you on that, which is that more than half of your tra- travelers are crossing borders, and that really does right. require a higher level of trust. And uh, the review yeah. we give helps establish that. That's powerful stuff. Very powerful stuff. The um, that you're talking about powerful stuff. As I mentioned to you, I just started a, a book, Emotional Equations. I'm about on chapter three, and uh-huh. tell, tell the folks how you came to write it, and let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's important as uh, millennials and all of us. All of us search for meaning in our lives, but it's very clear to APQC from our research uh, on uh, millennials and what drives them. And most of them are starting to run organizations. Uh, meaning is a big factor in it. So talk about yeah, that. yeah. I you know I um, I've always been fascinated at the intersection of psychology and business and psychology and leadership. And I you know my prior book to Emotional Equations Peak was about Maslow and psychology. So um, a, a few years later, I was in a state where I was really ready to move on from my company, uh, the company I'd started, but I felt handcuffed to uh, the company. I, I, you know, you're the founder and CEO and the primary shareholder, so, you, you know, what do you, how do you, you can't go float your rose in a resume. So I was feeling somewhat handcuffed, and uh, then the Great Recession came along, and I felt even more handcuffed. And, uh, you know, I had a, a, a basically a health crisis that happened in St. Louis where I had a, my heart stopped after giving a speech, and I, it, it, led me to being in a hospital overnight for a day day or two. And um, I had Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, in my briefcase, strangely enough. And it was partly because I guess I was sort of going through a a little bit of an existential crisis. Frankl's book really speaks to, you know, uh, this famous psychologist who was in a concentration camp. And he got a sense of who lived and who didn't. And what he found was the fuel for life in the most dire of circumstances is uh, understanding meaning understanding why you're here on earth. And so for me, I ended up trying to take that, you know, quite complex book, Man's Search for Meaning, and distill it down to an equation that I could remember on a daily basis, and that was despair equals suffering minus meaning. And despair equals suffering minus meaning. And the way the the math on that works is if suffering is sort of a constant life, there's always going to, it's always there if you want it. Um, But uh, despair and meaning are uh, variables, but they're, Counter, they're counter-cyclical to each other in essence. If you increase the meaning, you reduce the despair. And that's really what I learned in a dire time for myself. And that's what I started teaching. So I, the, the part that was interesting about this was not that I, it was just a way for me to have my own little mantra every day to remind myself where's the meaning. But I started teaching that to our leaders and then we started teaching it to our employees. We had 3,500 employees and they learned that, that equation, and then we went to the next equation, which was around anxiety, and there's really two ingredients that define anxiety. This is a very good one for leadership. Um, it's uncertainty and powerlessness, but it's not, it's not a plus at the times because it's sort of a combustible uh, equation. So it, when, you're, when you're anxious in life, it's usually two things. 
it's either uncertainty or it's feeling powerless. And so the thing to do when you're feeling anxious is to realize how do you actually take the uncertainty and either make peace with it or figure out how to get some certainty, um, even if the certainty is something you don't want to hear. And with the powerlessness, how do you have sense? How do you create some sense of influence um, such that you don't feel powerless? Because if you can actually in, in, influence either one of those, um, it actually can take down the anxiety. Oh yeah, can can you give me an example of that? Uh, just anything. Sure. So let's say that you're, uh, you're you know you're going into you know we may be going into a recession here in, in the U.S. again uh, or globally certainly in certain parts of the world, and let's say you're worried about your job. You know, you think you're you're going to lose your job. Well, that leads to anxiety. Okay, so what what? How much uncertainty do you have about that, and how much powerlessness do you have? Well, on the uncertainty side, it's like, hmm, I don't. I can see that the, the, our, our company's not doing as well as it was doing a couple of years ago. Um, I, I, but I don't know what the senior leaders in the company are talking about. Well, I mean, one of the things you could do to try create a little bit more certainty is is have a private conversation with your boss. Let's say your boss is one of the senior leaders, and say, you know, is how you know how does it look? How you know what's how are people how is the senior leadership thinking? Is there a risk that there might be layoffs? You know, would I be, you know, in you know have any kind of risk around that? That would be one way to try to get to the certainty piece. On the powerlessness side, uh, when it's on this particular uh, issue I'm talking about, uh, I'd say the best thing you can do is say you can be powerful in influencing what you can influence. You know, when things go bad and you're worried your job is on the line. Don't worry about your job being on the line. Focus on what you're doing well and just make sure you're getting credit for the things you're doing for, in the company because generally speaking, smart companies uh, don't get rid of smart people. And if you are in, not in a smart company and they're going to get rid of you, then it's probably just as well that you're leaving. Uh, so I think the key is just to look at those two things, uncertainty and powerlessness and what can you do. And if you can influence even one of the two, it has a big effect on the whole anxiety equation because it's a time sign versus a plus sign. And one of the two can actually really diminish um, the sense of anxiety. Oh, yeah, the time sign. I love it, the way you call it, kind of a combustible, but it also works the other way too. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. I love this one. Love, I love them all. But yeah. I think uncertainty and fear are, you know, the things that haunt us the most. The, sure. You know, I, I don't know why. The and they can stunt us. You know, anxiety can be something that actually makes us performance anxiety. You know, it sort of actually leads us to not performing well. I mean, not doing things well. So anxiety is very debilitating. And <clears throat> it is the most contagious emotion in most companies. So if anxiety is debilitating, not a good thing. If it's a contagious emotion in a company, especially at a time where the economy is going badly, that's even worse. And yet most leaders don't think through emotions and the fact that in many ways a leader is the emotional thermostat of the group they're leading. Mm-hmm. I have I've always said that when in uncertain times with people, give them information or give them control, one or the other. Yeah. So that's, you just said it. Well, you said it. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's so true. I mean, I, if it's going to be bad, let me know. And yeah. you know, we try, well, we try to do that. I, it's, we're not going to we're, we're lucky. Anyway, we won't go into what APQC is, but in the past we've had to, you know, many years ago we've had to do layoffs, and we, when we did that, everybody knew exactly what was going on, and there wasn't any second shoe to drop, and you know it was it was as transparent as we could make it, and 
We had to reorg at the same time. And I'm telling you, our customers never experienced anything but good stuff. Mm-hmm. It, we never missed mm. a beat. And I, I, I attribute that to our employees feeling like they knew what was happening. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So if you had to give one, given that fear is a driver, I'm leading you here, and you had to give one piece of advice to us on leading a man- meaningful life, what would you say, Chip? You know, I, it, this, it, that's a, <laughs> that could last a couple hours, the an- proper answer. I'll give you a brief one. I, I think when it comes to having meaning in your life, to me, I think what creates a sense of meaning is what is unique to you? What is it, why is it that you he- are here on this planet? And what is it that you're supposed to actually do and be on this planet as a result of the unique qualities that you have? Um, so in many ways, the thing that gives us a sense of meaning is living up to our potential in in terms of the the gifts we have and how we can um, in, uh, use those gifts. So that's why a lot of people find a lot of meaning around their children because there's no one in the world who's probably more influence, influential for your child than you are. And so you have great meaning because you were put on this earth to actually have that child. And because of that, it's going to be very meaningful what that relationship is between you and your child. The, the more you feel like the thing that you are doing is not in line with what your, you know, your God-given talents are, what your sense of uh, being on this earth is all about, then you're not not feeling connected to your sense of calling or what you're doing in life. It, you know, that's a very awkward feeling when you're actually asked to perform in something and something that just feels like, well, this isn't me. So I guess at the end of the day, I would just say. Meaning is very much a function of what is it that I'm uniquely here on earth to do and be in this world. And once you get clear on that and then you actually are able to channel that in a direction where it feels meaningful to you, you know, magic happens. Isn't that the truth? That's beautiful. Have you got any advice on how people can discover that? What is what they're uniquely here to do? I think you know what I, I. There's a few thoughts. One is look back at what you were doing at age six or eight, and like what was it that that gave you that sense of timelessness? You know, whether it was I have a friend who loved making mud pies in in, in the uh, in the in the garden, and I mean she just that's all she wanted to do, and then she ended up going off and trying to become a Stanford MBA. She's in my Stanford MBA class, and she went off to become an investment banker. And honestly, at some point, she just said. To hell with it! I'm going to become a pastry chef, and she—it wasn't the mud pies that actually took her there. But ultimately, when she became a pastry chef, we were talking about this. I just—I said to her, "Do you remember you used to make mud pies in the garden?" She said, "Oh, that's right." <laughs> and so, in some ways, at, at, at age six, she knew what she was supposed to do. But she, of course, went on a path like so many of us do—that was the conventional path of what everybody else thought she should be doing. So, I, I, some some of it is just tracing back to childhood, the things that gave you that, that joy and that sense of timelessness. Some of it could be just literally what you ask other people. I mean, sometimes it, it, it's hard for you to see it in yourself. Sit down with your three closest friends. It, maybe here's a, here's an exercise. And this this may sound incredibly scary for some people, but have a meal, lunch, or a dinner with your three best friends. Get them all four of you together. And then just say, this meal is, you know, this is going to be awkward. It's all about me. I want you to tell me what is it that I'm good at in life. And also tell me what I'm not so good at. And, and help me to understand I feel a little bit lost. I'm not, I'm not doing the work or the things I'm supposed to feel like I'm doing in this life. 
I want you guys to help me understand what are the themes or the skills I have that you know I should be looking to try to leverage in the world. Because sometimes the people who know you best have the best feedback for you, and it's not going to come from inside of you. You actually have to hear it from somebody who's watched you for a few years. That's a great one. So would you suggest warning them or not warning them that that's going to be the topic? I would warn them. I would warn them for sure because, number one, you want them to start have prep prep time to think about it before you actually sit down with them. And number two is it's going to feel awkward and it's going to feel more awkward if you like spring it on them yeah. when in fact one of them may have, may have wanted to talk about their husband or their wife or whomever. And, you know, they, you know, make sure that they know, okay, you know, we don't always do this. And in fact, maybe we could do it. Wouldn't it be interesting if you did with those other three people, you know, once a month, you know, every, you know, fourth month, you, you know, you did that. And, and you know, each 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 month, it was you know, one of you got to be sort of you know, center stage. Yeah, you rotate. Well, that'd be yeah, that exactly. would be great. I'm going to connect the dots, which is one thing I do well. And one of the a couple of dots are another Chip that you know, Chip Heath. Um, yeah. Chip wrote a book called Decisive, and one of the best ways to to make a decision is to uh, is to talk to other people about what they see as what you would like or not like, I mean, based on what they know about you, just as more data, more information about a decision before you make it. And I thought that was very valuable, and I think that's in some ways similar to what you're saying here, but I do think that that, uh, that whole technique is a, is a powerful way to find what's unique to you and to help you find meaning in, in what you're doing. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, Chip. The fascinating, sure. fabulous conversation and I really thank you for joining us on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas and being a member of our board and being somebody who brings psycho hygiene to the world of business. <laughs> wow, don't you love that word? I think it's a great word. It's a great word. It's a great word. So for those of you who are listening and reading about this, if you want to know more about Chip, and you should, you can visit his website, chipconley.com, and uh, follow him on Twitter and whatever social media you choose. And also he uh, also has another website, which we didn't have time to talk to today, about uh, the 300 best festivals in the world. Oh, is that cool or what? Yeah. And called yeah. Best 300. Love it. Thank now, you. Thank uh, you. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you. And if you'd like to learn more about APQC, you can go to our website, which is, as always, www.apqc.org. Thanks for listening, Chip. Thanks for coming, and to all of you, have a great day.